The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford. Hello and welcome to The Sexual Voice. I want to just very quickly say I hope that uh, people who have family or people who are along uh, the coast in Florida, Georgia, where I have some family in the coastal area of Georgia, uh, everyone's safe and uh, that they did heed the mandatory evacuation because uh, I think Matthew is a a bit of a nasty storm, and uh, I hope all will be well. So as we get into this week's episode of looking at I Was Robbed, Sexual Abuse and the Loss of Sexual Self, uh, I'm looking at, this is, uh, I think, one of the most challenging uh things that I face certainly as a sex therapist and a therapist who provides services to couples um, and individuals who have experienced sexual trauma. Uh, I've been doing this for several decades and uh, have provided a lot of service to individuals with uh, these experiences and it is never easy to hear their story, and uh, it's also sometimes recognizing I'm the first person who's ever heard their story, and uh, that's a very special place. Um, It's a privilege to be able to listen to what people have kept inside as a secret for so long. So it is challenging, and uh, to say the least. But I have a quick correction to make. Um, in when I listed the description of the show, I said I had two leading sex therapists. I certainly have one, and uh, you'll be hearing from her later, Wendy Maltz. But my first guest today uh, made it, you know, let me know that he is not a sex therapist. He is a psychotherapist. Um, But he does, and in both cases, uh, Wendy and Mike uh, work with sexual trauma, and they're here to discuss uh, how victims can move from being a victim to a survivor, and they're going to be sharing more um, along the lines of how to reclaim a healthier uh, life and, and sex life. So... I call these guests actually my bookcase people because as many guests that I've had on the show and today is the 11th show and over the course of the last 11 shows, I 
think I've referred to people as people I've read or people who, you know, are on my bookshelf and people who I share with uh, the clients that I see. So certainly these two people, uh, I have referenced their books many times and also shared their books with uh, many clients. So it's a special uh, feeling I have for Wendy and Mike both. Uh, I'm going to say... In this hour show, or 58 minutes, and I'm not going to engage in a lot of statistics because there's a lot out there um, about sex abuse at different age groups and the trauma that uh, people encounter from sexual assault. But just a very quick note, over the course of this 58-minute show, eight children under the age of 18 will be sexually molested. And that's staggering. What's staggering even more is that six out of a thousand perpetrators, only six will end up in prison. And I could have a lot of commentary about that, um, but I don't want to detract away from having Mike and Wendy speak. So I'm going to save the statistics, but I did post them, some of them in the description of today's show. The other piece that I am going to add just very briefly is uh, this RAND study that I did share in this little brief description. But there's some other key points. And as I get ready to introduce Mike Liu, uh, looking at this RAND study, they comment that this study was large enough to characterize assaults against men. And the full results found important differences in experiences of men and women. Men who were sexually assaulted were more likely than women to have experienced multiple incidents in the past year, to have been assaulted by multiple offenders during a single incident, and to have been assaulted at work or during duty hours. So, um, sometimes these words just are enough, and I think to comment more, I don't know, almost becomes a distraction. But today's guest, the first guest, uh, he's on the line, we have Mike Liu, who has a master's in education, he's a psychotherapist, a group leader, uh, a group therapy leader in Western Massachusetts, which I understand is uh, in a bit of a drought. Uh, he is the director of the Next Step Counseling and Training Center. And uh, like so many people I've had on the show, along with myself, he's a cultural anthropologist. Uh, he also is a leading expert on recovery from sexual child abuse, particularly issues facing male survivors. Needless to say, he has worked with thousands of men and women in their healing from the effects of sexual child abuse, rape, physical violence, emotional abuse, and neglect. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time from a very full schedule. And I have said this to you already, but it bears repeating again. It is truly an honor and privilege. Well, I'm... Very happy that I was able to do it, and thank you for inviting me. Welcome. So, I'm going to have you focus a lot 
more on male survivors than I know what Wendy did because Wendy's show was pre-recorded a few weeks ago. But from the male survivors that I've seen, and I've seen quite a few, what I've noted was that it seems to take them a lot longer than maybe female survivors to make that first appointment to come see someone. And it seems that they have to attempt these visits maybe with different therapists one or two times more uh, before fully engaging. And it often is, uh, is something is happening in their current relationship that has made it something has come up or something is occurring that seems to be that nudge forward into finding some way to resolve whatever has happened. And in these particular cases, so many times they say, I've never told anyone before. Or if they had, no one believed them, which is fairly typical with women as well. So... I've had men who are in their 80s tell me that I'm the first person they've ever told yeah. and often want to know if it's not too late. And yeah. my response is always, um, you've already begun recovery, you've broken the silence, you've told somebody. But I think our culture is very clear, at least traditionally. This is changing some, but not enough. Um, we have to look at our cultural attitudes toward victimization and toward masculinity and realize that child victims and adult survivors are often are also aware of these attitudes and they know that our culture is quite clear that men are not supposed to be victims and they worry that if men are not victims this must mean that victims are not men and in a society that's misogynistic, victimization becomes feminization. So it's a, this is one of the many reasons why men don't disclose, often for decades. Do you want me to keep going? Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, I, and, and, and I guess... I, I, I am going to let you know that, uh, one, I just always enjoy listening as well. But if I have a question, I have no problem asking. So, oh, um, jump but, in, but I, and you don't have to agree with me either, uh, even, uh, even if I'm right. <laughs> but you are. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, there, there's no disagreement. And uh, so you're... I, I'm going to... I can jump in and ask this question uh, and it's kind of like it seems like you're already answering it, but... How do you, or can you describe how sexual trauma affects men and women? What are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, for many years, I wasted a lot of time uh, trying to believe that there were no essential differences between male and female victimization. And of course, that's nonsense because men and women aren't the same. And uh, for many years, our culture denied the reality of men as victims and denied the reality that there are females who are abusers. And, of course, if you deny the reality, um, first of all, you don't have to uh, create resources. And uh, 
men who keep getting told that this doesn't happen eventually shut up about it. They know that it's not safe to talk about. Um, when I did my first group for male survivors, one of the things that was so astounding to the men was that they weren't the only ones. You know, yes. and uh, of course this is done to millions of little boys and little girls, and, uh, but it's done in isolation. And over the years I've become more and more convinced that isolation is the enemy of recovery. When I, when I revised my first book, Victims No Longer, for the second edition, the two major additions that I made to it were a chapter on clergy abuse and a couple of sections on isolation, because abuse takes place in isolation, and recovery has to happen in the company of other people. But it's tricky, because isolation can feel like safety. If I'm by myself, no one's going to hurt me. But it isn't safety. It's a, that's a false equation, because what happens in isolation is that the old, discouraging, negative abuse messages keep repeating themselves like a tape loop with nobody to contradict them. And uh, with isolation, there's no progress possible. So at some point in recovery, it's essential for survivors to meet other survivors for male survivors to meet other male survivors, as scary as that may be, mm-hmm. and hear, essentially hear their story or a story similar to theirs coming from someone else. This is a tremendous contradiction to the feeling that they're alien, that they're damaged, that they're not fully human. Um, and for many survivors, learning to respect somebody else's experience is a step in to learning to respect their own. So you're, this idea of working individually, is there a period of time that a survivor should work individually with, and I use this word, trained therapist, para, therapist uh, with, you know, with knowledge and skills around sexual sure, surviving? Sure. It's not either or. And I think for most survivors, it's important to have an individual therapist or counselor in place, at, at least at the beginning. And then okay. at some point, add some kind of group experience, whether it's a therapy group, a peer support group, or a workshop you know, a time-limited workshop so that they can move out of that one-on-one. Also, as you might imagine, the, for many survivors, the therapy setting can be pretty frightening because you're in a room with a closed door with one-on-one with usually someone older, you, an authority figure in secrecy because Um, confidentiality can feel like secrecy Mm. and this can be very reminiscent of the original abuse experience so it can be frightening when I work with survivors I tell them that they can tell anyone they like about anything I say or do 
They can bring someone into the room with them. They can have a friend or a loved one sitting outside the therapy office. Whatever they need to do to make the setting safe for them. And because I usually am working with couples and uh, the they've come because there's some issues around sexual dysfunction or how they connect and and one couple comes to mind where he could not bear to be touched and through a, a just the thought of her even coming up to give him an embrace was beyond what he could manage and uh, they were kind of at the end of their relationship because mm-hmm. she felt she was always being rejected which you know it, it was playing out that way and it was in a way he was rejecting her but he was not even aware of what he was doing in part because that touch that moved close to him or touched his arm or his back or whatever um, took him to a place of being the boy in the car uh, when the perpetrator uh, would reach over and touch him and he Mm -hmm. would freeze. And it was through, I was using, and I still use, mindfulness-based intervention um, which has helped, you know, at least people understand they can be present with themselves and recognize what was and what is now in the present. And uh, he was able to articulate this concept of freeze mm-hmm. and and what it was like for him because he freezes yeah. in that kind of response. Well, it's a tremendously tricky situation. Um I don't think it's an, an exaggeration to say that recovery is hell on relationships because to the degree that the relationship is informed or determined by old abuse patterns, those patterns have to change. And I think it's, again, it's not an exaggeration to say that no relationship survives the recovery process as is. Because if the couple is still together at the end of this process, it's a different relationship. It's healthier, but it's different. And uh, not every couple makes it. Um, the abuse, with, with, when we're talking about sexual child abuse, the abuse is installed in the most intimate of arenas, that of sex, of intimacy, of protection, of nurturing, of caring, of relationships, and all of these things have to be healed. And that's, it's a long-term and tricky process. It doesn't, there are no magic cures, there are no quick fixes, there are no pills, there are no, um, it's a long and difficult process. And as few resources as there are for male survivors, and there are more than there used to be. Right. Uh, there's still not enough. There are even fewer for their partners, for their loved ones. And it's equally difficult because the partner is going through a parallel process. The, the partner, first of all, it's, it's awful to, to see somebody that you love in pain and feel that you're unable to do something about it, and also oftentimes the spouse or the partner feels like he or she 
doesn't have a right to feel their own pain because it wasn't done to them. But of course, they're going through it together. And so the pain is shared by the two of them. And sometimes when a, when a partner is safe, it, the partner is also safe for the survivor to express anger, express outrage at this safe person. And that doesn't feel good. You know, it's not fair. It's not fair that the, that the survivor should have to go through all this. It's not fair that the partner should have to experience it. But, you know, nothing about if this were a fair world, there wouldn't be any abuse to begin with. So we can't wait for everything to be fair. We have to go through it. And that is a process uh, that, you know, again, this idea of being able to communicate or uh, we've talked a lot on this show about the need for touch and that this is a part of healing sometimes is just the ability to know I can be touched, but touched safely, touched in a way that is comforting as opposed to fearful. And, and for the survivor to know that he can set limits on how he's touched, when, and by whom, because that was taken away during the abuse. Yes. That... Um, is in part why I say I was robbed, because it feels yeah. like something is taken away from them. Yeah. This right, this, yeah. you know, and so, and, and at least as I've said, as I mentioned to you, this is a phrase that I've heard. Mm. I feel I've lost something. I feel like something has been taken from me, and uh, so I. And that's true. And losses have to be grieved. And massive losses, like with abuse, have to be grieved massively. It's a long grieving process, but it's absolutely necessary, and it's absolutely justified. Yes. I Just a, a brief question, because there has been a lot in news about military sexual trauma, and then I kind of began your, your piece with the kind of abuse that men seem to endure in the military. And I realize this you're not a military sex trauma specialist or mm-hmm. anything like that, but I know you have worked with some military. Is there anything you can comment on about that? Well, I think it, it's not limited to the military. It's in any closed institution where you have um, three... Um, Three situations. Any institution that has hierarchy, patriarchy, and secrecy is going to be ripe for abuse. So that's military, that's uh, the Catholic Church, that's mental hospitals, that's um, boarding schools, and, and on and on. Where you have those, those three aspects, you can absolutely expect that it's going to be ripe for abuse. Um, And in a macho setting like the military, talking about prisons, of course, and uh, in something like the military, uh, it's hard for males in particular to admit to having been abused. So 
it gets covered up, it gets repressed, it gets suppressed. Now, if somebody discloses and they're not believed or they're mocked or they're abused further, they learn whether it's a child victim or an adult survivor, they learn very quickly that it's not safe to talk about it. And they can go back into their hiding sometimes forever. Um, And so many of them do. And so many of them do. And so many of them disappear into suicide or uh, alcohol or drugs or other ways of, of numbing or other addictions and compulsions, anything to keep from feeling the pain. And I think that it's understandable. It's a survival strategy. You know, if, I'm, if I'm in yes. pain and I take a drink, the pain diminishes for a while. Mm-hmm. And so what's more logical than when the pain comes back, I take another drink or I take a stronger drink or I use a stronger drug and it works for a while. Yes. But eventually it stops working and the individual is addicted. And, uh, but I don't think the person deserves blame or shame for figuring out a survival strategy that works, however temporarily. Mm-hmm. The goal, of course, is to find healthy survival strategies that enable you to look at the pain, to feel it, and to move through it. Um, you know, a little child who's being abused only has one job, and that's to get through it any way that he can with mm-hmm. limited size, strength, resources, and he's being lied to by the abuser. Sure. Because, you know, abusing a little child is lying to him about the nature of love and caring and sex and relationships, etc. So this little kid just has to figure out how to get through it until such time as he has enough safety, enough resources, uh, enough understanding to begin to work on recovery. At the time, sometimes the kid um, dissociates. He creates fantasy families. He has out-of-body experiences, looking down on the abuse from the ceiling. He fantasizes that he has different parents who are loving and not abusive. And uh, that's a way of getting through it. And it's a very creative, courageous thing for a child to come up with. And I think these patterns all too often stay with them into their adulthood. So, But, Mike, we have to go on break right now. And uh, there's so much to talk about in so little time. So we're out on break. And we'll be right back with Mike and Wendy Maltz. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you experiencing a sexual concern or issue that you would like to discuss? Jessica Ford is available for a brief consultation to help. For a nominal fee charged to your credit card, you can experience a 30-minute one-on-one confidential phone consultation with Jessica on your sexual situation or challenges you are experiencing. To schedule your personal consult with Jessica, email thesexualvoice at jafordgroup.com or contact her through her website, jafordgroup.com. 
Remember to provide your contact information. Jessica is here to help you. Are you available to travel to Jessica's office between Milwaukee and Chicago? When the need arises, some issues or situations require more than a brief consultation. Consider an office visit with Jessica and schedule a one-time intensive therapy session of two hours or a half or full day. Follow-up sessions can be discussed and arranged. To find out more and book an appointment, visit jafordgroup.com or call 262-726-4722. Credit card payments accepted at time of service. Out-of-network insurance reimbursement is possible, but not guaranteed. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to The Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice. Hello, welcome back to The Sexual Voice. And... In this part of the show, I am so honored to have my next guest uh, take part in this. And this is something that uh, is a thrill for for me as I've learned so much about what I do from what she's written and uh, how she's contributed to the field of sex therapy, but almost also to include the field of sexual trauma. And uh, to have someone that I can talk with and share with a greater listener audience, uh, someone who sits on my bookshelf and I look at her name with regularity. So welcome, Wendy Maltz. And uh, she is an internationally recognized diplomate sex therapist. She's also a kindred soul. She's a licensed clinical social worker like myself. She is an author, speaker, and she has more than 35 years of experience treating sex and intimacy concerns. She has authored many highly acclaimed sexual resources, sexuality resources, including the recovery classic, and it is a classic, The Sexual Healing Journey, A Guide for Survivors of Sexual Abuse as well as private thoughts, uh, exploring the power of women's sexual fantasies. The Porn Trap, which is an essential guide to overcoming problems caused by pornography. I'm going to urge you all to consider looking at her website, www.healthysex.com, because it's just chock full of valuable resources and free articles, podcasts, her videos. So all of this is a a valuable aid for those who want to seek out more information about Wendy. So welcome, 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 Wendy. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Well, I I know time goes so fast on this show, especially when I have two guests, but this is such an important topic, as I've already told the audience. And I also want to tell everyone that due to Wendy's very busy schedule, 
we had to pre-record this uh, on an early September day, and uh, so this portion of the show is pre-recorded. So to kind of launch in uh, to this really sensitive topic, and and we know all of these things exist, and as I've said earlier, but I'm, I'm going to ask from your vantage point, you've worked in this field for so long with so many people who've experienced sexual trauma. Can you just outline or give us an overview of the underlying effects of sexual trauma as it affects people at different stages of their life, maybe in when the trauma occurred more specifically? Yes, well, sexual trauma, I mean, it's a sad fact of our society and our culture. It, it permeates it. You know, it's in our entertainment. It's, um, it, it, it affects and impacts many people. Think about a third, uh, a third to a half of females and um, around a... Uh, one in five to seven males um, in the studies that I've seen. And so it really, it's, I, I see it as kind of like there are a lot of injuries that people can have in their life. And this is a very interpersonal one. And it's kind of, right, I, I, I put murder on top of, of there. It's like murder than sexual abuse in terms of intimate wounds perpetrated by another human being. And so it's a very serious thing. Our sexuality is a really important part of who we are. And we get a lot of positive power from our sexuality. And it's a wonderful way of expressing affection and and sharing pleasure. And um, the sexual abuse is an attack on a person's sexuality. And uh, when people are really young, um, they don't have sexual experience. And so the early abuse, sexual abuse can kind of define what sex is for them, unfortunately. It really is a definition of sexual abuse and not healthy, loving sexuality, of course. Um, And then, but I mean, it impacts at any stage in life. Uh, later on, of course, if people have had some positive sexual experiences and then experience, um, let's say, a rape or another type of sexual um, uh, abuse to them, to their bodies and, and um, psychology, then it can, at least they have some comparison. They can go, wow, this is really different. This is really violence. You know, it's sex is violence. Um, but... Uh, it can still have a very serious impact. And of course, the situation surrounding it, if a person's life is in danger, um, can impact too. Uh, the impact can be affected by whether or not a person was able to get help at the time of the abuse and whether people, they were believed and supported and um, given an opportunity to process what happened to them. As human beings, we've got some incredible healing and uh, adapting abilities with we can uh, 
be able to recover from trauma, but it takes being in a safe situation in a caring environment and going through certain uh, healing steps and processing through what happened to them to be able to do that. And a lot of people, when the abuse happens in their childhood, they don't get, um, or even later on, they fail to get that kind of response um, to help them process it. And so they kind of um, can suffer problems that are in many ways a result of the repercussions of not having had the help at the time that they needed it and then trying to figure out you know, the experience on their own, often blaming themselves, unfortunately, or often also, unfortunately, thinking that what happened to them as sexual abuse was sex. I I think when I'm listening, uh, so many thoughts come up because I'm seeing so many faces before my eyes as mm-hmm. with people who have sat in my office. And uh, when you say they couldn't come forward or they, they were a child, they didn't know, as one woman would say, this became my norm. This is what I thought people did or this is what I thought... Yeah parents did to daughters and it wasn't until I went to a slumber party and when every all of my friends were telling their little funny stories about kissing a boy or something and I began telling my story that I realized when the mother came into the room uh, this was not a story that uh, was a good story and uh, so fortunately she got help but uh, I, I think this guilt then, and which is kind of a segue into the next question, um, how does this inhibits one's sexual self? And when I'm thinking of guilt and shame, uh, that is a real, that isn't a good aphrodisiac, let's just say. That isn't a good uh, way to feel desire uh, when you're feeling such guilt and shame around touching. So, can, can you continue to expand on that? Yeah, there, there are some messages that survivors can pick up um, that can, about who they are as a sexual person. They can feel that they're a damaged goods or bad. Or there's something wrong with me. Um, I had uh, some experience, some sexual abuse when I was a child, and I used to refer to it as the something wrong with me phenomena. (laughs) You know, it's like feeling different than other people because of what happened. That girl at the slumber party you were just describing, you know, all of a sudden realizing that um, she had such a different experience. And you can pick up the shame. Shame is sort of like a hot potato. The perpetrator tosses it at the... um, victim and the victim can often uh, you know take it in unfortunately they really need to throw it back at the perpetrator and say no I'm sorry this is yours Mm -hmm. and um, it's that feeling like I did something wrong or what uh, was bad about me that made this happen there must have been something bad Um, you know like I was told that I was sexual I was so sexy well, kids are not sexy. They're, I mean, or, you know, it, it, it's sex, our sexuality is part of our, who we are in our lives, but not in the sense of 
adult sexuality and desiring sex and being it being at all appropriate for them to have sex and it's that's the projection of the perpetrator on the on the victim and so you know I think a lot of what goes on is there's a a lot of garbage and um, shame and um, misinformation about sex that the victims uh, receive and then they have uh, it's difficult to move forward in terms of developing a healthy sexuality a a robust passionate enjoyable sexuality that um, relates to you and relates to you and your partner if you have one Um, it's hard to develop that Um, If you're feeling uh, bad about who you are, sexuality, or that there's uh, something wrong with you. So, yeah, separating yourself from from the abuse is a very important step in healing. No, and understanding that I think, at least as I approach it, with the perpetrator was executing his power or her power, because it isn't always a male perpetrator, mm-hmm. but um, that this, you know, becomes, a, as you said, there's a lot of uh, power in sex, and, and uh, but this is not, uh, this kind of power is an abuse. It's not even a sexual power. You know, a lot uh, of times people don't see the word sex and sexual abuse. They think of it um, as a, like an adult or an, another person did something bad, and, but they don't realize it's an attack on a person's sexuality. It's using sex as and sexual parts as a weapon and the other person, um, their sexuality as uh, the victims as a target. And so there's harm. It harms our sexuality. It's not like we can be sexually abused and then, you know, ha- come out of it with just feeling bad, something bad happened to us. It actually affects uh, associations we have with touch, um, the how we feel about a another person who is sexually interested in us, things like that. And all, all that needs to be, uh, you know, addressed and healed. Well, the process of, of recovery, and, and I use your videos and the video that you developed, and I share that, um, and as well as I often share your book uh, with clients. And, you know, it is a process. And I think as we've talked about, there are those who this information is disclosed at an early enough age that they can get some help and some support. And a lot of times it's a tragedy when they see their family unit, if, if it is a father that is, or another family member that's uh, the perpetrator often gets arrested and this breaks up the family. There's also the disbelief uh, from other family members that this was made up or this was, so it's not only have you experienced the sexual trauma, but you also now realize that your family has changed and somehow you're at fault. Right, but it's really the perpetrator. Yes, yes. The perpetrator is disturbed sexuality. The perpetrator's sexuality is, is impaired. And um, that he or she has a serious problem they haven't addressed. They're, um, you know, they're wounded. 
And, and like I said, because sexual abuse permeates our society so much, there are a lot of people pick up on aggressive, violent, sexual energy as being pleasurable. You can see it in pornography, for instance, mm-hmm. in today's pornography. And then they get really confused and they act out on someone more vulnerable. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of nefarious intent, but a lot of times it's that they have become kind of numbed and um, confused about what is healthy and what isn't. And um, and accustomed and uh, to to certain type of sex, uh, you know, as being exciting uh, or necessary to feel powerful. And, I mean, it's very sad commentary on on our society, but it's really important for survivors to not blame themselves, even if they're getting those messages from other people, you know, um, even subtly to to not to realize that this was something that was done to them. They didn't cause it. They didn't ask for it. It's not, it's something that is a burden to the victim. So we're talking about power and another part that I I know that you've contributed to uh, some of the literature around military and sexual trauma and this is a, a strong dynamic, and as we hear more and more disclosures, and it's not just happening to women, but it's men who are experiencing sexual trauma. And, you know, when you think of power, you, you know, the military is, is certainly a powerful force, but this has gone unnoticed too long. And so, you know, what can you share with us, you know, around your work and in your writings uh, pertaining to the military what what is you know what have you seen well i think people have additional challenges when the abuse happens um, in the military because and this is true also of when abuse happens within a church or within a, a camp um, environment or a school environment um, that you have then an organization an institution that should be responsible for protecting that that doesn't protect and often doesn't isn't able to respond to the victim in a positive way it's sort of your nightmare family or whatever you know and then um you know people who are uh, victims in the military they can um not be supported they might have to have more exposure to the uh, perpetrator because they don't they have less control over their environment and the, their situation they have to take orders from above and so uh, a lot depends on whether their commanding officer recognizes it as abuse and is able to act and protect them get them help um, or whether they're encouraged to keep quiet about it or to, to take the blame for it or think Things like this, and you know, there the number of triggers can be really high in the military too. If your perpetrator wore a uniform, which is very likely, right? You know, right, you right. know it's associated with the uniform. Then uh, you have to see that every day, and um, you know, you go. People go into the military because they want to protect others and defend, you know, the uh, rights of, in our country. 
and freedoms in our country and then to uh, and they rely on their fellow officers and um, uh, to you know to, to have their back in a situation and here you've got us uh, off things get really switched there's a big um, betrayal in terms of what the military is all about and and it's uh, it having instead of a positive, caring, uh, protective authority figure, it can end up kind of as colluding with uh, perpetrators in in this. And uh, you know, I've seen it also those the similar dynamics when I've worked with uh, victims of abuse within the church. They can feel even that. Uh, like God um, has betrayed them too, you know. There's this sense of what should be a caring, protective, loving institution, um, you know, isn't there when they need it most. And we need more education in the military to uh, protect against uh, sexual abuse and more response for people to get the help they need uh, as soon as possible and be able to get to safe private environments as soon as possible after trauma. Well, I in, in working, I, I work a lot with veterans and uh, with PTSD, and uh, sometimes it becomes so layered. You know, they have the trauma of being in the experience mm-hmm. um, where wherever they've been deployed. And then on top of that, um, because also alcohol is usually a prevalent right. factor in the military, then, you know, it, it kind of, and, and I kind of like, you know, this discussion today, because really you're kind of, we're talking about family, but you're also talking about institutional kinds of trauma. And whether it be church or schools or the military, these are all mm-hmm. institutions. And I think when you're looking at, then you enter into the use of alcohol. Um, I, one woman I worked with had been out with her fellow soldiers and, uh, you know, had never crossed any boundaries. These were just guys she knew. And... Uh, the next morning she found out she'd been raped but it's not too dissimilar certainly with what happens at uh, universities and colleges we we, we see this as well Um, but she carried the guilt because she she deserved it because she'd been drinking right yeah and so which is what you know I've had other young women talk about and so, yeah, this dynamic, but with the military, it seems like a lot of them feel uh, they can't really talk about their emotions anyway. They're soldiers. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that soldier piece, I think, yes. seems to me, Wendy, and, and has, have, have you seen that or heard that in, in your yes, discussions? Yes, very much. And that's been shown in the literature, too, the uh, suppressing of emotion. And in order to heal... We need to get in touch with our feelings and be able to express them, express our our hurt, our anger, the feelings of betrayal, um, the pain of of having to, uh, of what we actually uh, experienced. Um, And I mean, that's all, you know, we're talking about sexual healing from sexual abuse. It's like, oh my God, there's such a big piece just in terms of betrayal and emotional 
health, you know, to kind of overcome. First, sexual healing often is a later stage kind of process because there is so much to address first and to stop blaming yourself, you know, to own your body and your body's reactions is good in general and take good care of your body, not go into alcohol and drugs or self-abusive behaviors, you know, in reaction to having suppressed emotions, let's say. So, you know, it. uh, but I do want to tell you that sexual healing is a very important part of healing and well worth the time that a person invests in it because the abuse was sexual in nature. When you heal the sexuality, you can really heal on a core level and you claim back that which which you were robbed of, your healthy sexuality. And it is very empowering and not to mention pleasurable and fun and a wonderful way of loving with another human being, you know. Um, and it, it's our, our self-confidence and our ability to assert who we are in the world and be creative and dynamic is tied in with our sexuality. And that was Wendy Maltz. And we'll be right back with Mike and wrap up today's show. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you available to travel to Jessica's office between Milwaukee and Chicago? When the need arises, some issues or situations require more than a brief consultation. Consider an office visit with Jessica and schedule a one-time intensive therapy session of two hours or a half or full day. Follow-up sessions can be discussed and arranged. To find out more and book an appointment, visit jafordgroup.com or call 262-726-4722. Credit card payments accepted at time of service. Out-of-network insurance reimbursement is possible but not guaranteed. Are you experiencing a sexual concern or issue that you would like to discuss? Jessica Ford is available for a brief consultation to help. For a nominal fee charged to your credit card, you can experience a 30-minute one-on-one confidential phone consultation with Jessica on your sexual situation or challenges you are experiencing. To schedule your personal consult with Jessica, email thesexualvoice at jafordgroup.com or contact her through her website, jafordgroup.com. Remember to provide your contact information. Jessica is here to help you. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to The Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice. Welcome back. And that was Wendy Maltz. And with me still is Mike Lewis. We were listening to to what all the wonder that Wendy has to say. So, Mike, in the remaining moments that we have of the show, what would you like to leave the uh, audience, the listeners with? Well, I'd like to speak directly to survivors and just to say that 
abuse is something that was done to you. It isn't who you are. It doesn't define anyone. Recovery is long and difficult and sometimes painful, but things get better. Please don't give up. Please don't remain in isolation. Life does get better for survivors. Well said. I'm going to ask you to look at Wendy's site, and that's www.healthysex.com. Wonderful resources. She has today's show on that as well. And also, please listen to Mike's show, our Mike's uh, <laughs> website. Wait, wait. At, yes, thanks, Mike. At victimsnolonger.org. And in February, he's going to be running a Survivor with Couples uh, workshop uh, in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. You should check out his information on his website. Again, it's victimsnolonger.org for his up-and-coming workshop in the Poconos. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Wendy, if you're listening, thank you so much. It was amazing. And I'm going to let you know, this is I have two shows left in this uh, pilot. I've been uh, going through over the last uh, 11 weeks, and we have over 6,000 listeners uh, who listen live or on demand. I want to shout out to the folks in Venice, Florida. You're my biggest listeners. I don't know what's going on in Venice, but uh, thanks for listening. And please listen next week when we're looking at what can we learn from BDSM, and the word is consensual sex. So we have Russell Stanbow and Neil Cannon on that show. Please tune in and listen. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And remember, Healthy Sex Begins With You. Come back next week and we'll explore and talk some more. Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday. 